Hi, Physionic. Welcome or welcome back to the Physionic podcast. I've been, uh, I got a comment, uh, I suppose a couple days ago, two, three days ago, something like that. And they mentioned this documentary, this nutrition documentary, which is, <clears throat> these are always fun. I, I always love nutrition documentaries, regardless of which side they're on, if they're a vegan documentary or if they're a, a pro-fat documentary. Uh, it's, it's always enjoyable to, to kind of piece out the inconsistencies in the expert opinions or the, uh, and it, the experts always come from this. It's, it's as if they come from one documentary and they just shoot another documentary and then they shoot another documentary. They're ubiquitous. They're, they're always the, they're almost always the same experts, right? Uh, so I'll give you, I, I can give you a list of names. Um, you have Gary Taubes, who's always against sugar, or always against carbohydrates in general. Uh, you have Mark Hyman, Dr. Mark Hyman, which is always against sugar, always against carbohydrates. Uh, you have Jason Fung, Dr. Jason Fung, who is, again, always pro-fat against uh, carbohydrates. On the other side, you have, uh, for example, like Dr. Michael Greger, who is always against fat or meat in general, but inclusive of that is the fats and a priority on uh, emphasizing carbohydrates. And I'm probably, I'm, I'm certainly missing uh, several, but those, those names come out quite often. Anyway, it always makes me chuckle because it's always the same arguments and the, the documentaries are always pieced in such a way that they, they cleverly and maybe I don't want to call it cleverly. Maybe, maybe they have no idea. I mean, certainly the director has no idea because they're not like a nutrition expert or anything like that. But they they always seem to avoid all of the confounding variables. Meaning that if they say X food causes fat gain, and then they they all they base a lot of their information on associative uh, data, which there's no problem with associative, you know, correlative data, uh, looking at, for example, the, the introduction of a diet, and then seeing what happens on a particular metric, like weight gain, for example, over a 30 year period or 50 year period or something along those lines. There's nothing wrong with that. That's that's perfectly acceptable. But the problem is that they, they often completely just don't show one side of the equation. So an example of this, in this documentary that I'm looking at, it's uh, fat, uh, the fat myth, I think that's what it is. And it's got all the names, all the names I just mentioned, other than Michael Greger, because he's on the other side. Uh, but they, they, they show this association of the, the banning, or not banning, but the reduction, the the American Heart Association reducing the recommendations of saturated fat and saying that, you know, Americans should start consuming less cholesterol and less uh, butter, saturated fats, et cetera, et cetera. And with that reduction in that consumption, uh, there was this increase. Once that happened, once that recommendation came out, there was this increase in uh, 
weight gain, substantial increase in weight gain. So, <clears throat> you know, something like <clears throat> the, the 1970s on to now, uh, there was this increase in, in weight gain. And that's all fine and Danny, I, I you know, I, I don't have, I'm not going to dispute that. Uh, and they, they bring up a good point that of course, if you, if you remove fats, then you're going to have to introduce something else to make foods more palatable, to make foods enjoyable, which is certainly uh, introduction of sugar or, or carbohydrates in general, but certainly sugar. But, okay, fine. I'm not disputing any of that. The problem is that people are completely forgetting about other factors that also like with the introduction of sugar what else changes but they only they stop the questioning at sugar they're like oh okay this one thing was introduced therefore we can stop questioning we can blame everything on sugar and i'm not going to sit here and tell you that carbohydrates or sugars are you know the best way to lose weight or anything like that Hopefully by now, if you've been following me for or subscribing to, to how I do things, you know that I have a far more nuanced, balanced approach to things. If you want to go fat, the, the fat way, cool. I think that there are a lot of advantages to that. If you want to go the, the carbohydrate way, cool. There are advantages to that too. Like it, there, there's a give and take depending on which diet you choose. And you also have to figure that out for yourself. So if you have great success with one and you have horrendous results with the other, then totally it works for you. Like genetically speaking, environmentally speaking, contextually speaking, it works better for you. I will never dispute that because my platform is sustainability. But the factor that they forget once you add sugar is that there's a lot more processing that also occurred during that time. So you're, cons you're consuming these smaller portions that are that are hyper palatable and have mass amounts of energy calories and you can see the trend follows the exact same trend so that once that hyper palatability palatability no it's not palatability is it pal palatability hyper palatability once that starts to increase, let's say, and then I don't remember the statistics, so let's, let's say the 1980s or something like that, and you saw this massive increase in obesity, you saw this increase in, in weight gain, for example, that sure, that corresponded with sugar, but it also corresponded with uh, hyperpalatability and this increase in uh, energy consumption. And what they also fail to consider is that, and I, I have seen this data, which they don't show in the documentary, that added sugar then decreased, I think in like 2000 or 2010, something like that. It actually massively reduced and obesity still continued to go up. So now we have this, like what's going on there? Now you, if, if you're actually thinking about these things, you would think to yourself, okay, well then clearly the issue is not sugar. But again, I'm not here to say that sugar is wonderful for you. It certainly has detrimental effects uh, for a number of different reasons. But it's just this, this like, it's just like, it, it's, it's not this, therefore it must be this one thing. And my interpretation overall is we have many different factors that lead to 
let's say is this one metric weight gain, right? But overall, it's because we're over consuming. Now, the, the reason why you're over consuming could be because you just can't stave off cravings when you're constantly eating a high carbohydrate diet, a low fat, high carbohydrate diet. And that's fair enough. If that's your reality, you should not be using that, that style of nutrition. On the other hand, if you have, uh, if you're able to lose weight, for example, on a high fat diet, which is very common, I, again, I don't ever dispute that, that you can absolutely lose substantial weight on a high fat diet, then go for that. It, it, it's, or if you, but let's say, let's say you want to, uh, maybe you're an athlete and you need the prime performance. And in that situation, a high carbohydrate, low fat diet is perfect for you because you burn through so much energy and you're able to uh, eat a lot of food and you constantly have to be eating food. So, so you want to reduce the satiety of your food, then a high carbohydrate, low fat diet would be perfect for you as opposed to a, a higher fat diet. It's just like, it's, all context-based. It's all based on, like, we can get these large swaths of information. And then from there, you pick out what is ultimately going to lead to what is beneficial for you, the individual. So we learn about the data. And then it's not, it's not like the data is telling you, this is the only way you can operate. No, there's so much nuance within the data, these like subtypes of data that you, you can look into and figure out what works for you. And I just, it just irritates me so much, but it also entertains me so much to hear these experts just be so black and white about things. Uh, well, you remove saturated fat and therefore, and then sugar was introduced and then weight gain. It, it's, it's just like, <laughs> there's truth to that. But that's not the complete story. And stop cut like stop, stop, stopping your investigation at that point. Look at everything and be malleable and 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 be like, oh, okay, maybe I was wrong here, but I was right here. So now that I know that added information, let me introduce new data and see. It's just, it's frustrating. It's frustrating. Uh, but you know what? Oh, one more thing. Actually, there's just one more thing. I, I mean, there's so many things I could say about these documentaries. It's just like, as I'm going through them, I'm just like, oh, they should have done this. Oh, they should have done that. Nope, you completely avoided half the equation in this scenario. It's just, when when you have an eye for it, when you've when you've investigated studies and when you've, you've done, quote unquote, done science, you're able to, to pick out where there are so many confounding variables in the way that the, the, the documentary, like I said, is kind of slippery and going around those variables to, to make sure that it doesn't touch on them. But I already mentioned that. The, the problem is that they used a, a they, <laughs> I love it when they say, well, then we, we ran a study. The, the documentary ran a study. Ooh, these are always rigorous. Okay, so this is their study that they did, quote-unquote study. They had three people, which uh, I'm actually developing a course right now on how to read studies. 
uh, and that would be called, this is called a within treatments design, meaning that you're going to have three people and they're going to try one diet and then they're going to try another diet uh, at some later point and then you compare the data from the one diet versus the other diet. So the people act as their own controls. Okay, fair enough. That's, that's a perfectly legitimate style of doing research. The problem is that first, they only have three people. Secondly, they're not averaging anything. They're just comparing their individual results to their individual results, which isn't a huge deal, but you, for, for that person, that's fine. But for, the, for a, a takeaway for the public, that is not fine at all. Then you're looking at a single data point. It's just looking at three anecdotes. That's all you're doing. You're not compiling that data and actually seeing if there's a statistical difference between the, th between the, yeah, the, the three data points, which would be put into one. Uh, and probably there wouldn't be a difference. But regardless, let's just put all of that aside. Here's how they decided to, to do things. They had three individuals, not picked at random, of course, but whatever. Let's just put that aside as well. And then they had them consume a low-fat diet or a high-fat diet. And here's the kicker. Oh, my God. It's just good gracious. It just irritates me. This This particular thing irritates me probably more than almost anything. It is so disingenuous to do this. They put all three individuals on the low carbohydrate, high fat diet. And then they measured the, the, the metrics that they knew were going to change. So these individuals had maybe borderline high blood sugar. And they were maybe slightly overweight. Like one person was maybe slightly overweight. The other person was definitely overweight. Or two people were definitely overweight. So put them on a, a low-carb, high-fat diet. And naturally, of course, they, they were on this diet for a week. They lost some weight. Now, if you've been following Physionic for a while, you know exactly why they lost weight. The reason is because... They lost glycogen. That's one. That's one reason why they lost weight. They lost glycogen. So because of the loss of glycogen, which is stored carbohydrates within your, your body, your liver and your muscles, that leads to a dramatic drop in water weight. And I have content on this. I have content. Look, I have studies showing the, the, the overall weight change and the specific measure of water weight with the low-carb, high-fat diet versus the low-fat, high-carbohydrate diet. And it's clear as day that the ketogenic diet or the more low-carb, doesn't even have to be ketogenic, but just low-carb diets in general reduce body weight faster than the high-carb diets. That is not a shock at all because if you're removing carbohydrates out of the system, there's less substrate there for the body to produce glycogen. So therefore, it burns through, quote-unquote, burns through its glycogen reserves. Therefore, you lose a ton of water weight. And then it comes off as if you've lost a lot of fat. But the problem is if you were to then consume again carbohydrates, that weight, 
you will suddenly gain more weight on the, the low-carb diet because you lost more water weight initially. Okay, so these individuals end up consuming this low-carb, high-fat diet first. And I'll explain why that also is an issue, why they went first on that diet. So they did that first. And they lost, let's say, I think they lost something like two and a half pounds, three pounds, something like that. Which, of course, if you're, if you're consuming a diet for a week, and <clears throat> if, you, if you're consuming a diet for a week, and that diet leads to two and a half pounds or three pounds, that's like, it's over a kilogram of weight loss, you're going to be thinking, you're going to be scratching here. You're going to be like, what? This is incredible. This is the best diet ever. And then on top of that, so they measured two metrics. The two metrics they knew were going to change. One is the weight, which I just explained. The second one is that they had this continuous glucose monitor, which I understand people are all crazy about them and I don't have a problem with them, but people go a little too extreme with their interpretations of what's happening on like a hour by hour basis or day by day basis. There's so many different reasons why those things would fluctuate, but let's just put that aside as well. And they looked at this, these glucose monitors and they saw the, these pretty dramatic decreases in blood sugar. So it went from like, like 98 or like 104 or something like that, you know, milligrams per deciliter, which is you know, one of them is kind of normal, but the other one is more pre-diabetic. And then they they saw these dramatic drops to, let's say, like 80 milligrams per deciliter or even like 74 milligrams per deciliter. So substantial drops. But again, why would that be? The reason is because you're not consuming carbohydrates. That's why you see this drop in, in glucose, which fair enough, like that's not, that's not a knock on the diet, but I'm not trying to knock the diet. I I accept that the diet has benefits. <laughs> the problem is that when you then try to use that as an argument to, to these, these specific changes that may or may not even have health implications and then unfairly compare that against the next diet because they do that for one week and then they go straight into the next week. But before they do that, the dietitian or the doctor, like once they go, so they have a, a test at the beginning, so their weight and their glucose monitoring uh, before they go on the, the low-carb, high-fat diet. Then one week later, they go back to the doctor, and the doctor's like, wow, you lost two and a half pounds. I just want you to know that. It's like, first off, you're already biasing the subjects. So, of course, they're going to say, oh, wow, that's incredible. I love this diet. And then the, I heard the dietitian say, good luck on the next one. <laughs> it's like an inside joke, you know. It's like, of course, you're biasing the subjects to not like the next diet. Okay. This is, that's why these things are just not very, they're just so incredibly biased. Anyway, so then they go on to this, uh, this high-carb, low-fat diet. And, of course, they're hungrier because carbohydrates are, are, are less filling and they're less, uh, there's decreases in satiety. And it's like all these things that science knows. And we're not, we're not, it's not like people aren't acknowledging these things, but still there are ways around this kind of stuff. And still you can have results, but regardless. 
they end up consuming this, uh, this high carb, low fat diet. And of course their blood sugar was higher. And of course they regained some of that weight or they didn't lose any more weight. So at best they wouldn't lose any more weight because they had already lost their water weight. So what weight are they going to lose after their water weight? They're going to lose maybe some fat some fat weight, but that weight comes off much slower than the water weight. Everybody's experienced that. When you first start out on a diet, you lose, you know, four pounds, two kilograms, something like that, like in a, in a, in an instant, it's like a week or two. And then you're thinking to yourself, wow, this is so successful. This is going great. And then suddenly it just slows way down and you end up losing like half a pound or you end up losing no weight whatsoever. That's because the initial weight was water weight that you lost. So if they've already lost that on the low carb diet, they can't lose it again on the high carbohydrate diet, which they eventually, if they were in a calorie deficit, they would still lose some of that water weight. That would still occur, just not as rapidly. But the way the thing that the whole thing was designed, this quote unquote study was designed or this experiment, whatever you want to call it was designed is that you end up with, um, with people that end up gaining a little bit of weight because now they're reintroducing carbohydrates. So therefore their body has the substrate to produce glycogen again and ends up taking in water. So then these people are like, well, I hate this diet because it made me gain weight. And my, my glucose is higher. It's like, of course, I could have told you that, but like I, because you were put in this unfair situation, your body was put in this unfair situation where we were going to guarantee the results. We're going to be in favor of the, the low carb diet. Just stunning. I mean, just stunning. And if I were there, I would, I would absolutely I'd be like, nah, uh, 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 we're not doing it this way. We're doing it. This is how we would have done it. First of all, we recruited a lot more than three people. Uh, but let's say we were limited to three people. First off, I would randomize it. Not that that would have made a huge, huge difference, I think, but I would have randomized it. So they, the, the researchers or whoever wouldn't have been able to pick whatever diet that they were going to be on initially. And then I would have made sure I would have not told the participants what diet they were on. I would have made sure I did not tell them which one I preferred. The The other thing is I would not have told them the results of the diet after one week. Uh, I would have been on the diet for longer than one week, but let's restrict it to that one week. The second, the, and well, I've already mentioned several things. Another thing I would have told them. So I would have just given them like a meal plan or some sort of education on a higher fat, low carb diet without necessarily informing them, Hey, you're specifically right now on a high fat, low carb diet. There are definitely ways of doing that. And then, so at the end of the one week, they would have gotten their measures taken, but they would have not been privy to those results until after they were done with the second diet. Now, after the first measure, so, so they go through the week on whichever diet, because at this point now they could be on one diet or the other diet because it's randomized. Then I would have had them 
not go back to their regular consumption of food for let's say two weeks or four weeks, which is called a washout period, to then allow their body in this situation to regain the glycogen so that they can regain the weight and then for that for the next diet to have a fair shake at seeing results or seeing differences. And no doubt you still would have seen higher blood sugar with the high carbohydrate, low fat diet. I'm not denying that. There's there's just it's just that's the way it works. However, if they'd been in a calorie deficit, which would have been something else you could have thrown in there and made sure that they were in a calorie deficit. It probably, if you compared it to the pre, so the pre-diet versus post-diet, you probably would have seen a reduction in blood sugar, even on the high-carbohydrate, low-fat diet. So then the takeaway would have been like, okay, the high-carb, high low-fat diet still led to some improvements in my health, quote-unquote health, by these two random metrics. Uh, but the low low carb high fat diet led to better improvements in my health quote unquote health and that would have been a more nuanced that would have been a more fair establishment of of the situation but then of course if you had done other metrics uh for example if you had these people if these people really active for example and they exercised a lot. Maybe we're not talking about health, maybe we're talking about performance. Suddenly the, the low carb, high fat individuals would have maybe struggled because they would have hit a wall earlier. Or you know, there's just all these different variables and all these different metrics that you can look at. But looking at isolated metrics don't necessarily mean that you're going to be suddenly much, much healthier. And blood sugar, is the, one of the problems that I have with looking at blood sugar alone, it can be indicative of things, don't get me wrong, and most likely your insulin is also lower. Okay, fair enough. But you also have to do comparisons. You have to actually do the, the quote-unquote math. You have, to do, you have to do measures like HOMA IR or you have to do other insulin resistance measures to actually determine if you actually have an improvement in insulin resistance or not. So... I'm going to get off my soapbox here. Those are just two. I just mentioned two issues with this documentary. Just two. And I, it was like every 30 seconds, I was just like, nope, nope, they did this wrong. They didn't mention this. They didn't, you know, it's just like, it's nonstop. You could just go on and on and on. And the same thing with vegan documentaries. I, I, I do the exact same thing with vegan documentaries because they just, like the Esselstein studies, for example, or, you know, the China study, which has been just absolutely destroyed in terms of its uh, scientific rigor by many, many scientists. But whatever, I digress. I don't want, I don't, <laughs> you know, I, this is not the topic of today's podcast. So you're clear. Uh, the topic of today's podcast is discussing caffeine which has absolutely nothing to do with what I was just talking about. And I've been talking about documentaries for almost half an hour now. Uh, but I suppose that comes from the freedom of being able to talk a little more freely than uh, I normally would on video uh, when I do my more edited style videos and whatnot. Okay, so I did promise you in the title of this podcast that I would be discussing caffeine. Therefore, we will calm down 
and we will discuss some caffeine. Uh, first, however, a message from our sponsors. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I just need to drink some coffee. Okay. All right. So let's talk about caffeine. Uh, today's podcast, now that we're half an hour in, uh, is about how does caffeine improve your performance? And this is a far less contentious subject, although what I have, have to say uh, in another podcast upcoming on caffeine and heart health may be a little bit more debatable. Uh, I think some people may have some problems with some of the things that I may say, but I haven't finished my analysis of the studies on that topic. So uh, I can't, I can't really uh, speak, speak to it yet. So let's just focus on performance. Uh, so I'm going to cover caffeine and its impact on endurance performance. If you're part of the email list, you already uh, saw uh, probably all of that. And then I'd also like to lump in the effect that caffeine has on lifting performance. Because I have a lot of content, you know, this new format of how I'm doing Physionic has, has really worked out uh, quite well so far uh, in that it allows me to give you guys long form content uh, that is really useful. I, I think it's really useful. If you disagree with me, then send me an email and some constructive feedback, please. Uh, and it also has allowed me, it's freed me up with so much content for the video uh, format as well. So I've been really excited about this and I hope that it's been helping you guys. Uh, but let's just, let's just get into this. Caffeine and endurance performance and caffeine and lifting performance. Let's start with uh, endurance performance. So with the endurance performance, let me open up my notes here. Okay, so with the endurance performance, the questions that I'll be answering is like, does caffeine improve endurance performance? Uh, how much does it improve endurance performance? Is there a, an anomaly, a, a, an exception to the rule? The answer is yes, I'll go ahead and tell you that. Uh, and in what kind of context would you see improvements in performance and why? Why do we see these improvements in performance? So I, I read three studies. They, I mean, these kinds of studies are super easy to read. Uh, they're not like biochemical or molecular-based studies. So, well, actually one of them is a little bit more molecular, but uh, for the most part, they're super easy to read. And the studies used a pretty similar design. Oh, I'll also cover how much caffeine uh, to, to consume to, to see a benefit um, and when to consume it. So quite a lot of information. Okay, so the, the way these studies ran is they uh, usually, they recruited individuals. Uh, I think all these were men, but I, I feel pretty strongly that this would also happen to, to, for women. So, uh, you know, take my opinion as, as much as you trust it. And they recruited these individuals and then they had them either consume a placebo where they did not. So it was essentially a sugar pill, which 
uh, I have a, a little bit of a qualm with that just because I, I would prefer if they just didn't consume anything or not, not, they would still consume a placebo or they would consume something else. Uh, they would do something else. But the sugar pill, I think when you're talking about endurance events or if you're talking about uh, any sort of performance event where it's physical, I think that the sugar pill can sometimes be uh, a potential confounding factor in its own right because it is sugar. But it also depends on how much they're consuming. Uh, so I don't think that they end up consuming enough for it to matter. So maybe I just disproved my own point. Anyway, they would consume a placebo pill, which is just a sugar pill, so no caffeine. That's the point. There's no caffeine in this placebo pill. And then they would have individuals either in a separate group or within the same group with the washout period that I talked about during the documentary uh, rant with an appropriate washout period of, let's say, like four weeks, six weeks, two weeks, something like that. Some amount of time to, to get their body, A, to recuperate and secondly, to, to remove any sort of residual effects of caffeine. But of course, the caffeine's effects are not two weeks long. So it's just, it's an extreme washout period to make sure that there's no effect of caffeine. Okay, so the placebo or the caffeine, and then they end up consuming one or the other. And then after about 45 minutes or so to an hour, they end up performing the exercise. So if that's running a five, five kilometers, running eight kilometers was another study, or biking, so uh, cycling, for a, a certain amount of workload that they would have to, to bike, and they tried to bike that in the fastest amount of time possible, so a time trial. And the caffeine that they consumed was three or six milligrams per kilogram. So you take your weight. I weigh, uh, currently I weigh about 214, 215. Let's just round up to 220 uh, because I love math like that. 220 and then because it's 2.2 pounds per kilogram, that means that I take 220 and I divide that by 2.2. So if you're an American like me at the moment, then you know that uh, you'll just take your weight in pounds, divide that by 2.2, and then multiply that by either three or multiply that by either six. And that's your caffeine consumption, okay? So for me, at 220 pounds, divide that by 2.2, that's 100, that's why I picked 220. That's 100 kilograms. So 100 kilograms times three for the lower end of caffeine is 300 milligrams. So I'd be consuming 300 milligrams. That's like a cup, maybe maybe a cup and a half of a strong coffee. Uh, nothing too extreme, maybe two cups of coffee. And then obviously the high end, 600 milligrams. Okay, so that's the study design. Now, across the board, I can go ahead and tell you that across the board, there were improvements. It didn't, and it didn't matter if you were well-trained, if you've been exercising for five years or 10 years or 20 years, didn't matter. It didn't matter if you were habituated to caffeine, caffeine still improved performance. So no matter what, it improved performance. And the improvements, however, were extremely variable. So you had some people that the the kind of the average range that I saw was like right about one to about seven percent improvement. And 
I remember when I released this the long form video of this because I haven't released the short form videos uh, series of of this. People, <laughs> people already were complaining like that's not much of an increase. That's like nothing. It's like folks, I don't think you understand when when you're talking about like endurance training. Let's say, and I, I wrote this. If you're part of the email list, you you already know where I'm going with this. The I I, I quantified the amount of change in performance if you're all about performance a one even a one percent improvement just by consuming a liquid you know 45 minutes before your event is crazy and that liquid has tons of other health benefits let's say if you're talking about like coffee or tea or something along those lines that's crazy but then on top of that let's say if you fall within a little bit on the higher end like five percent or something like that six percent improvement I mean, think about that, a five or 6% improvement in your performance by just drinking a liquid. I mean, people want these results that are like 50% gain or like 300%, like you're going to become roadrunner. <laughs> it's, it's not how things work. I mean, it's just, it's not reality. It's not magic. Nothing, I mean, science to me is a little bit, little bit like magic, but it's not it's not actually magic, okay? You, we have to temper our expectations. Okay, so this drug, caffeine, if you consume it at three or six milligrams, and I'll go ahead and tell you, there's an upper limit. So that upper limit is right around like two or three milligrams per kilogram. So if you're thinking, I'm gonna consume six milligrams per kilogram, I'm gonna consume more and more caffeine and that's gonna get me better results, Think again, it's not gonna give you better results. So if once you hit that, that, that threshold, that, that, that minimum that you have to consume, uh, you know, two milligrams, three milligrams, right around that range per kilogram, then you won't see added benefit by consuming more caffeine. So just hit that threshold and then you're good. And so that leads to, you know, depending on the race, if you're talking about like a 10K, maybe that'll shave off uh, a minute uh, off your time, you know, not bad. Or if you're doing a marathon, I, I did the comparison uh, for the for the email list, and I think it was like 25, 20 minutes or something, or 25 minutes or something like that, at like a 5% improvement or 3% improvement, something along those lines. I mean, that's that is absolutely astounding. To, to have a 20 minute improvement in your, your marathon uh, just by consuming a liquid or a capsule if you want to consume it in capsule form. That's crazy to me. That's just, that, that is as close to magic as you can possibly get. And it keeps you alert. It make, puts you in a good mood. It's just so, it's just incredible. That's all I have to say about that. Okay, so but like I mentioned, there's a lot of variability. So, right, so there's like one to 7%. And one study looked, actually broke down the individual times. So a person, uh, so this is the eight kilometer race uh, running. They had eight participants. And for, you know, like participant one, they improved their performance by 20 seconds. So they, they shaved off 20 seconds off their time. Participant three shaved off like seven seconds off their time. They were the lowest. Uh, you know, another one was like 30 or in a 25 seconds, something like that. And then one person shaved off over a minute off their time. So it was over 60 seconds. 
which was so it, it shows you that there's this dramatic difference this and this is with uh, habituation to the exercise the reason why I say that the reason why that's important is because it's possible that if people aren't familiar with what you want them to do or or how to, you know how to perform the first time that they do something they're bad at it right like just think of anything that you're learning for the first time or even if you're kind of peripherally aware of how it works the first time you do it you might screw up or you might you might be a little slower you might be more cautious on how you do it or you know whatever it might be well when you end up doing it two or three times or a hundred times suddenly you become a lot better you become way faster well when it comes to something as simple as like running i mean people know how to run uh, for the most part so in that situation if you run once you're like okay now i understand you know what they want me to do so they have to have this habituation so where they come into the lab they go to the track with the the scientists with the researchers and then the researchers are like we're going to familiarize you with with the environment so that you're aware of what you're going to do. We want you to perform this one time uh, just at your own pace or maybe at a maximum pace. Maybe they don't even tell them that this is not part of the test. They're, they're just kind of telling, they're just getting them habituated to the environment. And then from there, uh, they'll go home for days, maybe even weeks and then they'll come back in and this will be the first measure the actual baseline they'll have them do it again and because they're already familiar with what to do they'll 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 get better results the second time almost universally you tend to get better results the second time so the point is what i'm saying is that i think with these studies that they did do that habituation to remove that confounding variable of the fact that if the person were to to do it for the first time and they measured they actually took the, the time from the first time that they saw the track and used the track. And then the second time, if they consume caffeine, then you're not sure if it's because they, they became more familiar with the track and how to run or if it's from the caffeine. That's, that's the confounding variable. That's what I'm trying to get behind. So that was a, a, a bit of a, a side note, but it is extremely important and it's related. So ultimately, there's a lot of variability. So, and that variability is most likely not because of a lack of habituation. It's most likely because of the variability in caffeine consumption or the effect that caffeine has. So why might that be? That's one of the questions. Well, this leads us into genetics. So this is where I had this one paper that was slightly more molecular, although just really slightly let me have a little bit more caffeine for performance boost performance gained all right so genetics comes into to play here because your caffeine let me describe the physiology of how caffeine functions in your body you consume caffeine. Hey, let's take me as an example. I just consume caffeine. I just consume some coffee, black coffee. That's how, I mean, I, I like stuff in it, but right now I'm, I'm fasting um, until later in the day. So I have my black coffee and then from there, that caffeine molecule, the actual structure, the chemical structure of caffeine enters my intestines and then it enters it goes through my intestines through the intestinal line 
goes into my bloodstream. Now that bloodstream then, you know, circulates throughout my entire body. So it's being filled right now with, with caffeine molecules. Those caffeine molecules have a series of different effects that we will go into in, in just a little bit, but let's say they have their effect. Over time, what happens is that bloodstream does uh, through what's known as the hepatic vein, there's a, a blood vessel that allows the bloodstream to get to the liver. And in the liver, you have this enzyme, this protein, this molecule, that is this molecule made up of proteins and of amino acids making up a protein. And this protein, this enzyme, will bind to caffeine. So once caffeine has gone through the system and finds its way back at the liver, this enzyme will bind to caffeine once the caffeine has entered the, the liver cells. And the enzyme will bind the caffeine, I've said that like three times now, and will convert it to its to other molecules. So it will change it from caffeine the chemical structure it will literally change the chemical structure from caffeine to three other molecules. Those three other molecules, let me see if I have them. I do. Look at that. Good job, Nick. Are paraxanthine, which is the one that I remembered, but they also convert it to theobromine and theophylline. I don't care. We, we don't care about the names that much. You, I should tell you, you should probably remember paraxanthine. But the point is that this enzyme converts caffeine into these three molecules. That's all you need to know. And it essentially, quote unquote, inactivates caffeine. Okay? So this enzyme, which is known as cytochrome P450, 1A2, but cytochrome P450, binds caffeine and converts it to these three molecules. Now, because it's no longer caffeine, it's been converted to something else. It no longer has the action of caffeine. So certain individuals, and it's a good amount of the population, but not a massive, it's not like 50% of the population or anything like that, but it's, you know, some small percentage, but you know, a small percentage of what, seven, eight billion people on the planet. You know, that's, that's a lot of people. That's millions of people we're talking about. They have this, this enzyme. They still have this enzyme, but it's slightly mutated, as in they have a variant of the enzyme. The reason for that is because their genetic code has a switch in it called a, a polymorphism. It has a, 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 a slight change in the genetic code that produces this enzyme. So when that genetic code is read by your cells, it produces the enzyme, but the enzyme is slightly different from what would be normal, quote unquote, normal. Now, I don't want you to think that just because you have mutation, you, you're, I mean, sure, you're different, but it's not like, it's not always bad. Sometimes it can be an extremely beneficial mutation. So think of like the Hulk, <laughs> if, you want, if you want to go to an extreme. So it's not always negative. And in this scenario, however, it can be negative in that. And the reason why I'm saying all this is because when we look at the results of the individuals with this enzyme and we look at their performance ability, their performance ability 
decreases as they consume caffeine. So with an increase in caffeine consumption, they see decreases in their, per, their endurance performance. So this enzyme has this effect on their ability to perform, their, this mutation. The, the idea is because this, technically this is still associative because, you know, it's not like we've, we've introduced a normal, you know, quote unquote normal enzyme and seen if that gets rid of the effect. But most likely, we'll just say that, most likely with the consumption of caffeine because of these changes in these, this enzyme, that you see uh, decreases in performance. So that means that most people that have this, this intact enzyme as it's quote unquote normally supposed to function, you see an improvement in performance. Some people have a, another variation of the enzyme where they don't really see an improvement, but they also don't see any sort of uh, decrements to their ability. And then certain people see this pretty dramatic uh, worsening of their performance. So there's these three variants, the AA variant, which is the fast metabolizers, meaning that the enzyme will, will bind to caffeine and turn it to these three other molecules very quickly. So it eliminates caffeine very quickly from the, from the entire body. Then the AC variant, which is the kind of moderate variant, which is, you know, it binds caffeine and, and removes it, uh, turns it into the three molecules, but not as quickly as the AA uh, variant. And then there's the CC variant, which is the slow metabolizers, where it takes the, the enzyme much longer to bind to caffeine and convert it to these three other molecules. And with a stepwise increase in caffeine consumption, the CC variant individuals see a stepwise reduction in their endurance performance. So this would mean that if you are one of those slow metabolizers of caffeine, and I'll give you a few sim, you know, signals for how you might be able to tell, if you are one of those individuals, you should avoid caffeine if you want the best endurance performance. Now, how can you tell if you are one of those individuals? Well, it's, you know, there's some really simple ways of doing it, but they're, you know, they're more, inv I don't want to call them invasive. Uh, well, one way that you could do it is by looking, getting like one of those 23andMe tests or, you know, one of those like genetic tests. And you don't even have to go through that. I'm assuming maybe you could go to, I mean, hey, if you know a researcher, they could do it for you uh, pretty easily. But yeah, most people don't. So in that situation, then uh, you can just go to your doctor, I, I don't know if doctors can do the, the genetic tests. I mean, they can definitely take the samples. The samples are very easy to do. You, 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 don't, it's, you don't have to test the liver specifically because I guess I'll, I'll go off real quick. All your cells have all of the genetic components. Well, almost all your cells have all the genetic components of every other tissue. So your brain has the same genetic components of your liver. Your liver has the same genetic components as your muscles, et cetera, et cetera. The difference is that which sections of the genome get expressed and read varies from tissue to tissue. And that's what allows the differences between our different tissues. So that means that you don't need a sample of the liver to test if you have this, the, which version of this gene do you have.
you can get what they did in this uh, study is just like a cheek swab. And that cheek swab is then enough to enough material, enough cells to then test for whatever a gene variant. Okay, so that's one way. And that would be definitely the most direct way that would tell you exactly. However, you know, clearly not everybody's going to do that. There are other more indirect ways. Now, the problem here is that the interpretation of that is going to be a lot more difficult. So one is like, if your blood pressure doesn't decrease after consuming caffeine for, let's say, like six hours, it's still elevate. You still have elevated blood pressure, for example. That would be an example of a person who's probably a slower metabolizer, maybe not CC, but slower metabolizer of caffeine. Uh, or if you cons- especially, I think for sure, if you consume caffeine early in the morning. And you are wide, like you have difficulty falling asleep later in the day, but then when you don't consume caffeine, you have extreme ease falling asleep later in the day. I think that would be a strong sign that you are a slow caffeine metabolizer. And as a result, this would absolutely apply to you. Uh, another test, a test that you could definitely do is to run these experiments on yourself. And the way that I would organize that, I, I, I do this in the video. I mentioned this in the video. I'm probably going to release a video on specifically how you can test this stuff specifically on yourself. Uh, but to give a little more context. So the way that you would design this is you are an N of one. So you are a sample size of one person, right? So it's not like we can, we're not even interested in the, in the data of multiple people. We're only interested in you. But even with you, you can have a bad day. You can have a good day, right? For all a, a, a plethora of different reasons. So as a result, you need more than one data point, which means that the way that it would work is that you would start, let's say you would uh, consume, if you really wanted to be rigorous, you could randomize it. Uh, which I think would probably be best to 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 blind yourself to which consumption you're consu- to to which pill you're taking. But what I would do is, if you were really really nerdy, and you really wanted to know, you could you could fill like these pill bot these little pills with a set amount of caffeine or a set amount of sugar, and then have a number associated to each one. <laughs> they have, they'd have to be the same color. They'd have to have a number associated to each one and then just jumble it up and have a, have the, the, the numbers like separated from you. So you, you will never, you will not look at the numbers until after the experiments are over. I'm getting super detailed here. So the, the, the list of numbers, with the key to what it corresponds to, sugar pill or caffeine pill has been removed. Uh, put it in your safe, let your dog eat it. Hopefully it comes out the other end because you're going to need it later. Uh, give it to someone, whatever you have to do, just put it away. And then what you're going to do is take this one of the pills. You're going to mark down which number it is, right? Uh, so that you know which one you, you did. So let's say pill number four. And you don't know if it's caffeine and you don't know if it's sugar. It doesn't matter. And 
you're going to consume it. And then about 30 minutes to 45 minutes later, you would want to standardize that. So you would always want to leave, you know, within a, a reasonable range. It doesn't have to be, oh, it's 45 minutes, just bolt out the door. But, you know, 30 minutes to 45 minutes, something like that. Then you would go for a, a run at as fast as you could for at minimum, I would say at minimum a kilometer. But really, you should probably be doing a little bit more than that, like probably like three kilometers, something over a mile for sure, if we're back on American standards. So let's say three kilometers to a little bit over a mile, let's say like a, a mile and a half, two miles, something like that. And from there, then you would record the time that you, you, you got, right? So you, you got back to your, you got to your finish point, you record the time, and then you put that next to pill number four, because that's what you consumed. And you would repeat this, I would say three times, at minimum three times, most likely five times for each condition, which means you would need three sugar pills and three caffeine pills. You would need three or you would need five sugar pills and five caffeine pills. And then you have these times that correspond to the three sugar pills and let, well, let's just take three trials, for example, three sugar pills and three caffeine pills. So that means over six days and usually you'd wanna give yourself a break uh, just so that the the, the wear of, of running like that doesn't, uh, doesn't affect the results. So let's say you do this every other day. So in total, it would take you, let's say, two weeks to do this entire experiment, this entire study on yourself. And then from there, you have these all these numbers, all these times related to all these different pill numbers. Then you go into your key and you correspond, okay, which pill was to which, uh, which uh, condition, so caffeine or sugar. So then you lump all the, the numbers for the, for the caffeine condition and lump all the numbers for the uh, sugar condition and get an average off of those. And then, you know, technically I would run statistics on that, but you know, generally you'll be able to tell some sort of difference between the two. So once you have the average, which is just the three numbers divided by three, so you add up the three numbers, divide that by three, and for each condition, and then you'll be able to tell, is the caffeine number lower than the placebo number compared, or the sugar number? If it is, then voila, you have a, a benefit from caffeine. However, if it is about the same, there isn't much difference, maybe one or two seconds difference, or maybe even like five seconds difference. Yeah, there's probably, you know, you're probably not getting that much benefit from caffeine. On the other hand, if your caffeine number is like 30 seconds worse than your placebo number, then most likely you're getting, you should avoid caffeine because it is not helping you uh, in terms of your endurance performance. And you can be more certain of that the more trials you do. That's why I was aiming for more five over three, but three would be the minimum. And that number, you may think, well, maybe that's just random chance. But the, the more you do this, the more times you do this, the more that that number is representative of multiple trials all put together. So it, it, it accommodates, it takes into consideration all the trials. So if you had one trial that you did super well on caffeine, and the other four trials, let's say you did five this time, 
the other four trials show that you did a really poor job, no matter what, it doesn't matter. You still, uh, overall, the average is that you do worse on caffeine, for example. So that was long-winded, but truly that is a really rigorous way of making sure, of, of telling what, what in the world is going on. All right, so that's three different ways that I just uh, showed, uh, told you that you can, uh, you can test this in yourself. Okay, so a little bit on the physiology so that you, you understand what exactly is going on. Uh, so caffeine, well, let me back up. When, you're, when your muscles are contracting, let's say you're running, uh, when your muscles are contracting, there are these filaments that, that slide over one another over and over and over again. So they twitch, and that's all within your muscle cells. And caffeine, what it can do is it can stimulate the release of epinephrine from your uh, adrenal glands. The epinephrine can bind your muscle cells and can lead to more calcium release because calcium is the trigger for those filaments to contract. So one of the mechanisms is that epinephrine leads to greater uh release and uptake of calcium. So it modulates calcium. And no, I'm not talking about calcium in your bones. I'm talking about specifically calcium. This is a different mechanism, although same, you know, it's still calcium, but it's, it's a different mechanism. So it can increase or decrease the, uh, the, the uptake and, and, you know, everything related to calcium, which then leads to these, uh, the filaments then, uh, contracting or relaxing at a much faster rate. Another piece of evidence is that caffeine seems to, can, can also affect the muscle cells directly, but the studies that have been done have, have used like toxic levels of caffeine. So the chances that this is a major uh, modulator is unlikely. A bigger one, especially when it, coming to, it comes to marathons uh, or, you know, just like let's say 8K events, 10K events, things like that, is that caffeine can bind to your fat cells and can increase lipolysis or the release of fat molecules. The reason why that's important is because when you're running, you want to reduce the emphasis on glucose or uh, carbohydrate metabolism. The reason for that is because you have limited amounts of stores of carbohydrates and you have extreme stores of fat. So the more you can rely on fat and reduce the reliance on uh, sugars, the more your cells can, can then generate energy off of those fats. Because if you run out of the sugars, uh, you will hit the wall, quote unquote, hit the wall where you run out of it, you feel like you run out of energy where you can barely walk anymore. Um, and the reason for that is because your cells rely on a certain amount of glucose to do any sort of explosive activity. And that can get really granular in what the definition is of explosive activity. So we're talking like just trying to pass someone, even though they're like jogging and you're jogging as well, just passing them uh, can require glucose. That requires glucose, not fat. So in those situations, then you would be relying more on glucose. So in any situation where you can reduce the reliance on glucose as much as possible and rely more on fats, then that will spare what little glucose that you do have available within your muscle cells. So caffeine can have a, a positive impact in, in that way. 
And the other way is I mentioned that you should remember the name paraxanthine, so caffeine being metabolized uh, by the cytochrome P450 enzyme into paraxanthine as one of the molecules. So paraxanthine seems to have some independent positive effects on uh, blood vessels. So it will open up the blood vessels. So it allows more nutrients and more oxygen into uh, areas of high work, like your heart, for example, or your skeletal muscle cells. So the more blood flow you can get in and out of those regions, then obviously the more, um, more of a benefit you'll get. And where fast metab metabolizers get a benefit is that it's not from caffeine specifically. So initially it may be from caffeine, but later on it becomes more and more about paraxanthine as more and more caffeine is being converted from, from caffeine to paraxanthine. So this paraxanthine will then bind the blood vessels, le lead to the production of another molecule known as nitric oxide. Nitric oxide will then bind the blood vessels as well and lead to the opening of those blood vessels. So we're talking like arteries, for example, or arterioles. And that allows for greater blood flow. So those are a few of the different mechanisms as to how caffeine affects performance or specifically endurance performance. Now, if you'll give me, oh, I already found it. Okay, so now I'd like to shift gears uh, for lifting weights. What happens with caffeine and lifting weights? Uh, and do you see improvements in performance? Now, I remember a, lo uh, a long time ago, I suppose it was like three, four years ago, something like that now, uh, I did cover a study that looked at caffeine's direct effects on muscle growth, and it had, I think, negative effects that it reduced muscle growth. If I remember correctly, I could be off on that. Uh, but this is where, again, nuance and context, context, like that's, okay, that's a weird way to say it, uh, context, and understanding how to interpret data and, and not being reactive about your conclusions is really important. Because I can tell you that the studies that I looked at for caffeine's effect on lifting performance, for example, so the number of repetitions that you're able to perform was increased with uh, caffeine consumption. So it was... Uh, people that were again habituated to caffeine they consumed uh, about i think five milligrams but i think studies were done with three milligrams per kilogram so still within that range of the endurance as well so what they did is they had people consume a placebo so they still had this habituation period right where they came into the the lab and they had them lift weights specifically the bench press and the leg press so we've got an upper body measurement and a lower body measurement and then from there, they sent them home after their habituation. They're like, okay, you, you see the equipment, you know how it feels, you know that how, the, how to perform this, you know, we've taught you everything. Uh, go home for X amount of time. Then when you come back, we're going to actually test you. Or maybe, like I said, they don't tell them. They just tell them, hey, come back on this day. Uh, don't consume caffeine beforehand. Uh, and that's what they did. So the participants come back and then they get they're given either a placebo or the caffeine. And usually the experimenter, the researcher doesn't know himself or herself or themselves. So the placebo, so the people that were given a placebo then 
did a number of repetitions. So they would do three sets of bench press and three sets of leg press for the maximum amount of repetitions that they could do at a percentage of their one repetition maximum. So at one point, they had come into the lab and done the maximum weight that they could do with good form uh, on the bench press and once on the leg press. And then the researchers took a percentage of that, so 80% of that one repetition maximum, and told the participants then the next time they came in, after they'd consumed their placebo or their caffeine, again, about a 30 to 45 minute wait uh, before actually doing the exercise, they told them, okay, now do as many repetitions as you can possibly do. So it's called an AMRAP, as many reps as possible. Um, and the placebo group, I mean, I, I don't know the exact numbers. They did like, I don't know, 13 repetitions, let's say, something like that. So for their first set, so their very first workout on the bench press, they did 13 repetitions. Then, of course, they got they received like two minutes time to rest or a minute time to rest. And then they did the exercise again for the second set. And from there they did, let's say, uh, I think it was like eight repetitions or nine repetitions. And then they did that again. They, they rested and then did it a third time, a final time. And they were only able to get about five repetitions. That makes sense. Obviously, if you have a limited amount of time to rest and you're already doing this weight at to failure, essentially, and then on top of that, you're doing it three times over. Of course, you're going to get weaker over time. That's not a shock. That should be completely understandable. However, when then they consume caffeine, what happened? Did they see better improvements uh, or better results? And yes, they did. But here were some really specific things. So on the first set, so last time they did 13 repetitions, the, the second time that they did it, which was weeks later, uh, was they did 14 repetitions. So they were able to gain, eke out one more repetition of uh, that particular exercise. Now, two things. One, they were only able to eke out that extra repetition on the first set of the exercise. They did not see a benefit on the second set and third set. So that means that the caffeine positive performance effect only occurs on your first set of the exercise. The second thing is that it occurred on upper body and lower body. So bench press and for the leg press. And most likely they didn't come in for both individual experiments or tests. So likely the, the benefit of caffeine is not just on the bench press and then you you will never see that benefit again until uh, the next day when you do leg press. It can be in the same workout, meaning that you can get an extra repetition on your bench press and then you don't have to think, oh man, but I wasted that extra repetition uh, because caffeine is no longer going to have an effect. You're right in terms of the bench press, the bench press will not see improved performance anymore. But when you then later switch to another exercise like the leg press, within the same workout, you will still see a, a gain in that benefit. And that's most likely because uh, that whatever's happening in terms of wearing out the muscles, that is not compensated for by caffeine. So caffeine allows you to eke out that extra repetition 
but it doesn't lead to, uh, you know, whatever like tiredness or weakness occurs over time as you lift that same lift over and over again is not compensated for by caffeine. Okay, so hopefully that was clear. Now, how does that translate? Well, as you know, uh, if you've been following, again, Physionic for a while, you know that if you increase the volume or the amount of weight lifted over, let's say, a week, then you're increasing the signaling for muscle growth. So there's an increase in the signal for muscle growth. So most likely, this increase of one repetition, you're probably thinking one repetition, just like with the endurance thing, 1%, that's nothing. One repetition, that's nothing. Again, we're not talking about steroids here. We're talking about, you know, these, these single molecules that, that, that you already take anyway. Most of us already take. So the reason why that's important is because if you were to stack that one repetition every single workout across multiple exercises week after week after week, that ultimately leads to a pretty significant effect, which could mean then that your overall volume on caffeine compared to not being on caffeine is eventually going to start pulling away where it's actually going to start making a difference. And you would see increases in muscle growth, at least the potential for muscle growth. Obviously your nutrition is what's most important from that point on. If your nutrition isn't on board, then uh, you're, you're not gonna be gaining muscle even with this extra repetition that you, you gain. The point is that the signal for muscle growth is increased as a result of this increased volume. Then from there, it's up to the back end, not related to caffeine, your nutrition, your sleep, your rest, all those things have to come in and actually maximize and take advantage of that extra potential for muscle growth. Hopefully that is clear. So yes, caffeine does help with uh, muscle growth or most likely helps with muscle growth through this mechanism at least. Now, a question that I also wanted to investigate then is, well, what about the genes? You know, do we still do we still see this negative effect with this variant of this cytochrome P450 uh, gene or enzyme? And the answer is no. There is no negative effect of this gene. I say that with about 85% confidence. The reason why is that the study that I found, which was well done, but uh, one of the problems that I found is that they grouped the AC individuals with the CC individuals. Remember, AC is kind of that middle group, uh, and the CC is the people that are very slow metabolizers of caffeine. That is, in my opinion, not a great way to go about it. Uh, because the previous study in, in the endurance athletes did separated all three groups. So the AA, so the fast metabolizers, the AC, which is kind of moderate or slightly slow metabolizers, and then the CC individuals, which were the uh, really slow metabolizers. Separating those out, we saw that there were distinct effects. The AA saw improvements in performance. The AC saw no improvements, but also no decreases in performance with endurance performance. And the CC individuals experienced uh, a loss in performance with caffeine. So now imagine if you lump the CC individuals with the AC individuals, where does that lead you? Well, it leads you to a mixed 
grouping. And now you need a lot more individuals to, to be able to tell an effect because the AC effect is different from the CC effect. So if you blend those two together, how can you tell, how can you actually be able to, to distinguish if there truly is an effect or not an effect? Uh, so I'll say, I'm saying 85%, I should probably honestly put, put that even lower. Uh, let's say, you know what, I'm gonna do it. I'm doing 60% confident uh, in these results. Again, I think the study was well done. It's just that lumping those two categories of people together, it assumes that those two, in, those two types of people are similar enough that you can lump them together. And that just, at least by the endurance performance, uh, that is not the case. Now, the reason why they did that, I think, is because they did not have enough of the CC individuals or AC individuals, something like that. I think probably CC individuals to have their own group. So I understand the reasoning, but uh, they probably should have extended the, the, the recruiting or, you know, extended the time of recruiting so that they would have had enough individuals for the CC individuals. Uh, so, but based on the data that we have here, it does not seem to be a genotype effect. So there does not seem to be a gene effect of this uh, cytochrome P450 on caffeine metabolism and having an effect on performance. So meaning that even with this AC or CC genotype, this, uh, this liver enzyme producing this other variant of cytochrome P450, the slower metabolizing of caffeine does not have a negative effect on performance. You will still see an increase in performance as described earlier. Uh, in terms of the mechanisms here again, you know, things are going to be about the same, They're the same mechanisms, except for the one that I would remove is the, uh, well, probably two of them. One is the paraxanthine through the vasodilation. So the increases in, in vessel diameter that I mentioned with the endurance. So obviously the exchange of blood flow is a lot more important when you're talking about an aerobic exercise, so talking about cardiovascular exercise, talking about like running and, and uh, rowing and biking and things like that, blood flow is a lot more important for that. Not to say that it isn't important for lifting, but if you uh, pr give yourself enough rest, it may not matter uh, as, it's definitely not going to matter as much. Rest between sets, I mean. So the vasodilation aspect probably isn't as much of a factor. Maybe it's a small factor, but it's not as much of a factor. And for sure, the lipolysis factor. So the lifting weights is almost universally glycolytic, meaning that you're using glucose almost exclusively. So as a result, you're not going to be seeing these, you know, the, the release of more fats for your muscle cells to use. Your muscle cells are not going to be prioritizing fat regardless. They're going to be using their glycogen to produce the energy necessary to lift the weights. So that's probably not going to be a factor. The one that is a factor is definitely epinephrine. That is definitely going to have a, an effect. Uh, and the other factor that could be the case is the effect that uh, caffeine has on, ad on adenosine. So being more alert. So when we first wake up from sleep, we have very low levels of adenosine. So this molecule, this metabolite that gets produced throughout the day. So as you go throughout the day, 
your cells are constantly pouring out adenosine into your bloodstream. So your adenosine levels increase over the day. Now, the problem with that, or not problem, but one of the functions of that is that adenosine will then bind to receptors in the brain and will signal sleepiness and will signal drowsiness and signal lowered alert, alertness, as well as, excuse me, as well as decrease the tolerability of pain. So it will increase the perception of pain as more adenosine is found in the system. I need a coffee break. Hold on. Okay. All right. Hopefully my voice will start to come back. I think it will. I must persist. I must uh, persevere. Okay, so, yeah, it's back. All right. What was I talking about? Oh, yeah, adenosine. So adenosine then, you know, reduces alertness. It reduces pain tolerance, and it increases drowsiness. So caffeine, because of its chemical structure, is very similar to adenosine. It can actually block those same receptors. So as a result, therefore, then caffeine can have this benefit because it will do the exact opposite. So it it will increase alertness. I mean, we know that for sure. When you first wake up and then you have your first cup of coffee, let's be real, you're definitely a lot more alert. Uh, You know, that's where you get those mugs of don't talk to me until you you see my mug is at this line or whatever, otherwise I'll kill you. Uh, You know, things like that. Uh, There's a reason for that and that's one of them. So the alertness, so it increases alertness, it decreases pain perception, and it will obviously uh, decrease drowsiness. So it's possible that this increase in motivation and, and, and ability to uh, block out pain perception can, can have a, a positive effect when you're lifting weights and allow you to uh, gain that extra repetition. So all in all, you know, all this information put together, what are kind of the takeaways from this? The takeaways are that you can, that caffeine is generally, a, has a positive effect on performance. It has a positive effect on endurance performance for most individuals, except for those select few that have, that have slow caffeine metabolism, which we talked about how to recognize that. If it does have a benefit, the benefit probably maxes out around two, but really definitely at three milligrams per kilogram of body weight. So if you're consuming that amount of caffeine, then you're going to see improvements in your performance. And that also holds true for lifting weights. I'm a lot more skeptical if there's a gene effect or not with the lifting weights the study that I looked at showed that there was no effect of the gene, so the slow caffeine metabolism. But I, for the reasons that I mentioned, that they grouped those, those two groups together, the AC group and the CC group, I'm not, I think that's a major confounding variable 
factor and therefore could lead to improper conclusions. So I'm really not sold on that yet, but based on the data that we have so far, we'll just tentatively go forward and say that it has uh, no negative effects on performance for lifting weights specifically. And finally, taking caffeine in terms of the timing of caffeine, you want to consume it about 45 minutes or so before the event, whatever uh, training that you're going to be doing or event that you're going to be doing. So you don't want to be taking it and then immediately going to do it. You want to take it, you know, wait 30 to 45 minutes and then uh, start performing your, you know, the training or whatever it might be. Okay, folks, uh, hopefully... Well, my voice held out, so that's nice. Uh, hopefully, you felt like this was informative. If you did, seriously, I would super, super appreciate it if you reviewed the podcast on whatever platform you're on and or shared the podcast. Uh, and if you think that I can improve it somehow, then please uh, also, you know, send me an email. Uh, let me know how I could, you know, some ideas for how I can improve it. Because I'm, I'm certainly malleable when it comes to this kind of stuff. I, I, I just want to make this the best experience for you as possible within the, you know, within reason. Uh, I, I have limited time and, and capabilities, so and resources for sure. So, uh, yeah, let you know if 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 that's if that's if you feel so inclined, please uh, please do. And uh, I hope, yeah, like I said, I hope that this was informative and I hope that you're gaining something out of this new format of Physionic. I feel like it's a lot more applicable. It's all, you know, I'm giving you all the physiology and going through the studies, giving you the reasoning for all these different things. But then I'm also offering you the, the application of, you know, what this means for you. So uh, I, I, I'm enjoying it. I'm having fun with this, you know, when I can carve out some time to record these longer form podcasts. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate you guys. So uh, until next time, have a wonderful, wonderful life. Until then. Bye.